Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Pastoral Thoughts Podcast. I am your host, Jack Young, and with me in the office today is Dave Salini. And today we are excited to do the life and ministry of D.L. Moody. And so I hope you enjoy. I know that him and I enjoyed studying D.L. Moody's life and his ministry and uh, we did use a book that we'd used a little while back, or the same author, by Richard Ellsworth Day. He wrote about uh, Spurgeon, Underneath the Shadow of the Broad Brim. Uh, and we used as a reference for today's podcast, it's called Bush Glow. And, uh, and it is on the life of Moody and, and Spurgeon and Moody's books there by Richard Ellsworth Day. Kind of go hand in glove. And so um, studying... D.L. Moody, uh, I'm reading to read a, a little bit of a summary of his life. He lived during the 1800s, the mid-1800s, and uh, here's just a little summary of his ministry. Is uh, He preached to over 100 million people. He had, over, uh, ten, well, he had tens of thousands of days of meetings, and uh, he had a pretty much a continuous revival campaign for over 25 years. And uh, D.L. Moody uh, also established several different Christian institutions. Northfield Seminary was one of them. Also, um, Moody Bible Church in Chicago, uh, Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. Then he had uh, several other boys and girls' homes and things along this nature and influenced Christianity in a tremendous way both here and in the nation of England. And I know personally, uh, D.L. Moody has inspired my life in a few different ways. One is he emphasized the work of the Holy Spirit. We see that in his life, and that is something that he learned. That was a that learned behavior. Also, that um, the value of just going after souls. D.L. Moody was a tremendous soul winner. Uh, another thing, he was sensitive to uh, the needs of the people around him. And I believe that had a lot to do with his upbringing, his background experiences, the hardship that he had endured in his own life. And he wanted to help those that were around him. How about you, Dave? Yeah, that's definitely something that I pulled out of that. He, and, and it's encouragement to all of us, he used his difficulties to inspire him, you know, rather than them taking him down. And you can see that permeate his entire life with him loving the poor, loving children, giving people things that he didn't have. And um, and just kind of as a matter of introduction, um, he mentioned the author, Richard Day. He had written this book shortly after his book on Spurgeon. And certainly there are times when I was reading this book that I couldn't put it down. Um, just the life of Moody is so challenging, um, inspiring, convicting, He's just so he was so sold out and so zealous and so uh, given to the Lord's work, and through growing and just there's many things and we'll get into it, but um, I would encourage you to if you do pick up the book to stick with it. There are times that are difficult. There's a lot of wording and symbolism that Day uses that are uh, symbolic. Uh, you would want to read Pilgrim's Progress to under understand even his chapter titles many not, times yeah, a lot of antiquated references and terms mm-hmm. that we don't use anymore and things along this or references to society back then in the 1930s when he wrote this true 
And uh, so when he began the book, he kind of picked up where he left off with Spurgeon, and he, in comparison and contrast, he talked about how he felt it might be difficult to be enthusiastic about Moody in comparison to Spurgeon. He said to go abruptly from Spurgeon to Moody seemed like passing from Sierra Glory to Nebraska Prairie. Um, and he, but he said, for those of us who must go through life as poor ordinaries, the story of the commoner of Northfield, who, which he is referring to Moody, who grew up in Northfield, Massachusetts. He says his story has an even higher value than mm-hmm. the heir of the Puritans. Mm-hmm. He continued that Moody's life puts hope in our one-talent lives, showing us that advantage in God's sight does not come from our genius, our talents, our abilities, but from our consecration and surrender. And that's a great lesson to be learned in, in this book. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I got out of it. You can excuse yourself if you read the autobiography or or the biography of Charles Spurgeon. The man was a genius um, and he did have a great relationship with God. But at the same time, he had superhuman capabilities and he was a prodigy from a young age. Mm -hmm. Uh, Here's a guy, he said when he preached he had eight different channels of clear thought he could be thinking about eight different things at the same time while he was preaching um what you read about dl moody and he was uneducated he never had good spelling he never got good grammar down uh he came from a poor impoverished non-christian really they went to a unitarian church but a background he wasn't given the advantages that spurgeon was given uh, and he doesn't get saved till he's 19 years old, and he has to educate himself in the Bible. And nobody ever accused him of being a genius. Now he he had in uh, an emotional intelligence and uh, emotionally had a high IQ. He could go out and get people. Uh, but other than that, yeah, I'm reading this, and I think you got no excuse, Jack. <laughs> and so, yeah, he he had to go after it. anything he had, he worked for. So his his life was an obstacle, uh, is an obstacle to our our comfort zone. True, because he is us. I mean, he is the commoner. He's the average man. Uh, and of course, the challenge is given. Probably a lot of you have heard this challenge before that he heard as a young man. Uh, the world has yet to see what uh, one. Uh, world is yet to see what uh, God could do with one man who's completely dedicated himself to him. And of course, Moody's prayer was, God willing, I would be that man. Mm-hmm. And uh, really, he his life was, was completely consecrated to the Lord. So we start with his childhood, huh? Start in Northfield. Northfield is a famous town because uh, Jonathan Edwards is uh, was from there and preached there. And uh, he is loosely related to Dwight Moody. D.L. Moody is related to him. He's also related to the Roosevelt family, uh, interestingly yeah, enough. Right. Uh, but they did not grow up in Christianity. They did not grow up. Um, also, they did not grow up with wealth. Came from an in, impoverished background. Yeah, I found it interesting that he, to, to know that Jonathan Edwards held revival meetings in Northfield 104 years before Moody was born. So there was some religion in that area that permeated the, the town. Yes. And so um, so let's start with Moody's father. We'll just, we'll just jump in here because there's so much in this book and we're not going to spend hours and hours on it. Uh, but him and his family were poor. There um, ended up being nine children 
but Mr. Moody's father, Dion Moody's father, was just a day laborer. And um, after they had bought their home, they mortgaged it through who um, Richard Ellsworth Day calls Mr. and Mrs. Scrooge. And you'll find out here later uh, why that is. But um, they, they mortgaged their home through them. So three years later, Edwin is laying stone. He's a mason. And this is going to be significant because he is a mason. His mason tools uh, are going to be used later by D.L. Moody as he as he lays the foundation for his Northfield Seminary. Uh, and what uh, he goes up into the attic and gets out these hidden tools that have been hidden since his childhood and pulls out his dad's tools. And so he Edwin is out laying stone. He sees with pain uh, from overexertion. He went home, staggered to his bed, knelt in a posture of prayer, and death took him before we really know before we really knew how seriously ill he was. So, and one month later, June 24th, uh, D.L. Moody's mother gives birth to twins, Elizabeth and Samuel. And um, so here you have a widow mother giving birth to child. Is it child eight and nine? Uh, Moody was the sixth child born so that i think that was seven and eight child seven and eight born to his widowed mother yeah imagine that yes 36 years old nine or you know at the time eight kids loses her husband and she loved him dearly yes amazing and so here's deal moody's mother uh and the writer does not think that she knew the Lord unto salvation. She didn't, of course, with a lot of people who grew up in the country at the time, did have some sort of religious background, and Christianity was the religion of the time. Uh, and they did have a family Bible in the home. They did go to a Unitarian church. But he he says um, that night after night, he could hear his mother up in bed weeping softly, and uh, she'd pick up the Bible that uh, was given unto her, and uh, and she would crowd on the Lord. And, and it says, the writer says, Who can doubt that the angelic hands directed her eyes to see Jeremiah 49, 11, Leave thy fatherless children, I will preserve them alive, and let thy widows trust in me. And uh, Moody does say that his mother's hair from that point on turned white. This woman was under a lot of stress, a lot of sorrow. Yeah, it's amazing. She did, although as the, as you know, it seems clear that she wasn't was not born again. She had a trust in God that that culture did back then, mm-hmm. and she prayed after finding that verse. I know that Thou hast given these children to me, and Thou wilt be a father to them, if I will do a mother's part. Okay. And she did the mother's part, and uh, as the Bible says. Uh, God says, I will reveal myself unto the meek. And so here's a lady crying out to the Lord. She doesn't know the the way of salvation. Her one son later is going to be one of the world's greatest revivalists of all time. And um, and then she is going to, after her, her son becomes a preacher, which she did not want. Right. 
because uh, he was making a good living as a shoe salesman, but he does become a preacher, and she does turn to the Lord, and she becomes, in her older age, in her midlife, a very, very great woman of the faith. Um, she actually never even hears him preach until he's famous, and he comes back. He never, She never sees the ministry in Chicago. Mm-hmm. She never even hears him preach until he comes back, I think, from England years, years, years later. Right. And so here... Um, you want to tell about Mr. and Mrs. Scrooge? <laughs> well, I didn't have that in my notes. Okay, let me tell about Mr. and Mrs. Scrooge. So this is a this is a very important story because this plays into the life story of Dwight Lyman Moody. Uh, so Mr. and Mrs. Scrooge, whose real names in another book I saw, uh, is Mr. Purple. I remember his his real name, but he, the code name here is Mr. and Mrs. Scrooge. And so they hold the mortgage for the Moody family. And again, so she has eight children. She is a widow. And he comes to collect $400 from her. She doesn't have any money. She doesn't have any way of making money. And she's in bed uh, just four days earlier. She had given birth to twins. She's trying to recover. And she doesn't have payment. She begs for mercy. Uh, but Mr. Scrooge takes away the family's firewood, Mm. so confiscates that, and the children have to lay in bed until it's time to go to school in the morning because it's too cold to walk around the house. And I think this is very impactful to the life of uh, D.L. Moody because he is going to work endlessly and very hard until God calls him out of the business world Mm -hmm. to ensure that he has never have to endure poverty again. And how the story is going to end up, the schools at Northfield, he is going to be able to purchase from Mr. Scrooge Mm -hmm. his property and and build on that property and own the surrounding property there. And uh, a Bible institution is going to go up on that property. Yeah, it's wonderful how that turns out years later. And also, though, in regards to the money, thankfully, uh, it, we'll see the relationship he develops with his uncles, perhaps in the next chapter, but uh, his uncles or his mother's brothers are able to come up with the money to bail him out so they can keep their home. And they pool together the money to pay for the mortgage, and then they also do come with a, a great load of Firewood. Yes. Uh, another another story that I think is pivotal to the foundation of D.L. Moody is that um, D.L. Moody, Moody has an older brother, Isaiah, uh, who is a prodigal who runs off the sea and his mother does not hear from him for four years. Uh, and then when he comes back home, is he's immediately forgiven without even apologizing for what he had done. And D.L. Moody is going to use that many times in illustrating the story of the prodigal son. He's going to tell about his older brother, Isaiah, who is um, reconciled to the family. Yeah, that showed an amazing love. And you think of all the things she was going through, and then she had to deal with that, mm-hmm. her son leaving like that. So there was heartache there. And then um, they did not grow up, they did not grow up with a Bible background. Uh, he says here, right in this formative chapter, that D.L. Moody once um, spoke with pathos to Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, uh, that he, who he had spent time with on several occasions. Spurgeon was D.L. Moody's hero. He had every single uh, Spurgeon, Spurgeon sermon that was ever produced, ever published, any book that Spurgeon ever wrote. But uh, D.L. Moody once spoke to Spurgeon and said, you, Charles Spurgeon, 
have the advantage of hearing these matters from your youth up, while I must laboriously seek them all out. So Spurgeon's father and grandfather, and then generations back, 12 generations were Christians. Charles Spurgeon grew up uh, in church work, six years old. He is reading the works of uh, Matthew Henry, reading Matthew Henry's commentary. Right reading Pilgrim's Progress over a hundred times before he leaves the, the house. And Moody does not have this advantage. Mm-hmm. Next mm-hmm. <laughs> up in our What chapter are you going to? Book. Overtaken by the King. How's that sound? Sure. Sounds good. Our, our books aren't uh, the same publisher, so our pages are... are if you oh, it's a little... Page, di- yeah, if you yeah I can't tell you the page number. Yeah. Right. So D.L. Moody has an uncle. And um, now he's a mischievous tr- child growing up. He's getting in trouble and he's rambunctious. And you can imagine, uh, raised in a single-parent home, and his mother's trying to... Um, influence these young men but they're they're pretty wild rambunctious and he has an uncle Simeon who has a shoe store in the town of Boston and um, his uncle came to visit the home but uh, he was told you know by the family and don't don't hire DL because he'll be telling you how to run your store and uh, so he took that advice to heart so DL, he's out uh, chopping wood one day in Northfield, and he decides he does not want to do country work anymore, that he is moving to the city. He's had enough of that. He's out. And, uh, and so for three days, here's another foundational story. It says he began, he shows up in Boston, he goes to his Uncle Samuel, but he is too proud to just out-ask Samuel for work. He thinks that Samuel ought to ask him to work for him. And so he's too proud to just uh, ask Uncle Samuel for work. Uh, and so Samuel said, you better go out there and get a job. So for three days, it says, he began a week vigorously looking about for a situation. He ended it sensing failure. The last two days, he had that awful feeling that no one wanted. He said, I had that awful feeling that no one wanted me. I never had it since, and I never want it again. So there was a there was a dark feeling there in Boston that no one in the world cared about him. He would go on the rest of his life making sure that uh, people knew that he, D.L. Moody, cared about them. So he goes back and he humbles himself and asks his uncle for a job in the shoe store. Fortunately, his uncles had some compassion and some patience with uh, DL, and it would be to their advantage later on. But uh, he finally goes to them, and uh, his uncle Samuel says he would give DL a place, but there would be conditions. He said that he must board where he was told, keep off the streets at night, avoid questionable places of amusement, and regularly attend the Mount Vernon Church. And uh, definitely... Uh, Dwight would agree, and yet there's a, a phrase throughout the book that uh, DL would say often, yes, a thousand times yes. Uh, it was, yeah. uh, you know, people that have certain sayings that they say, and that was something that 
he was known for saying in his messages and such. And either say yes a thousand times yes or no, and a thousand times no. Yes. And he was known for either saying one way or the other. So that time it was a thousand times yes. Mm-hmm. And so the deal in the mandate thing about this parents is that, hey, if you're, if you're going to be working for me, this is what the boss says, you're going to go to church on Sunday. And this would lead to D.L. Moody's salvation. Yes. You want to talk about that? Because that's one of the good stories. I don't, I don't want to steal them all from you. Yeah, actually. And in leading up to that, I thought it was neat because he went to the church and he, he liked the pastor, but I think probably because he was from a country town, he felt that the people of Boston were maybe a little uppity. And uh, he he would talk to his aunt, his aunt um, what was her name? Typhenia. It was Samuel's wife. And uh, she would encourage him to just keep on going and, you know, keep his eyes on the Lord and just do what's right for right's sake. And and so he kept on going, and he was assigned to a class uh, by a teacher by the name of Mr. Edward Kimball. And um, the author here, Richard Ellsworth Day, compares his aunt to a maid who taught Charles Spurgeon doctrine. And so you, you never overlook um, these conversations that you can have even with children or with young people about the Lord and about his word because his aunt who spoke the words of God into his life uh, was a catalyst for his salvation. Yeah, that is definitely something that you need to take out of this. There's so many people along the way that encouraged him and in you and your life as you serve in, your, in the ministry. Um, and any word that you say of encouragement to young people it is not in vain, and you just never know, you know, what could come of it. Amen. Yeah, and I heard a great sermon one time. It was preached by Sam Davison, but it was Moses and the Mighty Mississippi. <laughs> and he talked about how the Mississippi River, at its start, you can jump over it. It's so mm. small and insignificant, but there, along the way, as it makes its way down to Mississippi and down to the ocean, there's tributary after tributary pouring itself into it. And that was definitely the case with D.L. Moody. And um, now at this point in his life, it is unconsciously people are pouring themselves into it. Later on, he's going to seek out great men and women of God, and he's going to learn from them. And he would go up to them and glean from them. But yes, she was one. And then uh, Edward Kimball, his Sunday school teacher, a Sunday school teacher who changed history. Yes. Want to tell us about that? Yeah, and so he was burdened for D.L. Saul. It says on the morning of April 21st, 1855, he went down to the Holton store, determined to speak to D.L. about his soul. I made a dash for it to have it over at once. D.L. was in the back of the building wrapping up shoes. He looked small enough with his 135 pounds that he wouldn't stay that small. Mm-hmm. No. Massive black hair overdue at the barbershop. Full lips, heavy eyebrows, and dreamful brown eyes. Quick, vigorous motions like a Maricopa quail. See, that's the kind of language uh, Mr. Day uses. Maricopa quail. (laughs) We'll have to look that one up. (laughs) So Kimball put his hand on his shoulder. And uh, I just think that's, you know, something that D.L. Moody would never forget. Mm -hmm. And come to find out later, I mean, Mr. Kimball didn't even remember exactly what What he he said said to to Moody. But um, he said, I never could remember just what (laughs) what I did say, but something about Christ and his love, that was all. But the heart of the future prince of God lingered a thousand times on that sweet moment. I can feel his hand yet. 
Mm-hmm. Marvelous the way of the Spirit. The limping words of Kimball were blessed. And so God was ready to save this individual. This individual was ready to be saved. And uh, I love the, it quotes Moody. It says, I went out of door. I went out of doors, and I fell in love with the bright sun shining over the earth. Here's a young man that really was was bitter about life. Mm-hmm. He says, "I never loved the sun before. When I heard the birds singing their sweet song on the Boston Common, I fell in love with the birds. I was in love with all creation." So he accepted Christ that morning. He certainly was genuinely saved, and we'll see yeah, as his just- life begins to change. And, and so, yeah, the Holy Spirit just uh, changed his whole outlook on life in general, and it was uh, um, just a new birth. And Edward Kimball um, played, I, I think, a very significant role in D.L. Moody's life because Edward Kimball didn't wait till Moody came to his Sunday school that he actually went to his place of business, and D.L. Moody's life was going to be summed up as just going out on the streets and going mm-hmm. and confronting people about their soul and talking to them about their soul. And so D.L. Moody, as he preached, he talked about Edward Kimball, and he said, I can still feel his hands on mm-hmm. my shoulder. And if you live in the town of Boston, there is a plaque on the building where he was converted, a bronze plaque, and it says this is the building of D.L. Moody's conversion. And so the town fathers there in the town of Boston knew the significance and um, the, the um, impactful life of Moody and they even put a plaque, Town Fathers did, of where Moody was converted. Yeah, so certainly, if you're a Sunday school teacher, let that challenge you. Mm-hmm. Don't just, you know, wait for your class to fill up. You know, pray for your class, have a burden for your students. Go go, go out, meet them, talk to them, uh, talk about the, their soul with them. And uh, you just never know what young person's in your class, what God could do with their life if you would just take those opportunities Yes, and, and Kimball testifies there that he, he was nervous. He walked pa- back and forth in front of the store a few times, didn't know what he's going to say to Moody. He just goes in there and from the heart with tears in his eyes, tells him about the love of Christ and not sure exactly what he's saying, And but Moody receives the gospel message right there and it's converted and um, shapes history right there. Yes. And so um, D.L. Moody goes west. He goes to Chicago and in the mid-1800s here. That is, um, I mean, that is like a western frontier town. It's a growing town, and it is ripe for a man of God who is seeking after souls. And D.L. Moody does not yet know the man that he would become. And he goes and he seeks out a place of employment, and he finds employment with a letter from his church which is very interesting to me. Uh, so he's got a letter of commendation uh, from the church that he was attending in Boston saying that this is a stand-up fella, and that helps him get a job there in Chicago. I didn't catch that part about the letter from the church. Yes. And um, so Moody starts working hard and uh, starts becoming a very, very good salesman. Tells everybody that by the time I'm 40, I want to lay up $100,000. And... Um, Everybody who knew Moody said that is absolutely a possibility, and he has some traveling salesman job. He, he is just a salesman of renown, and uh, here's how good he is. Just as a young, um, early, early in his 20-year-old man, uh, this commercial traveler that he, wor- that he worked for, commercial traveler owned by C.N. Henderson, 
And on January 6, 1859, after less than a year in his new position, Henderson died, and a singular tribute was paid to the stripling just come of age in the estate of several hundred thousand dollars. It was turned over to him, D.O. Moody, as administrator. Immediately, he entered the employment of Buell Hill and Grand and Granger, but in a year he left them, as we shall see, for the greater firm of Christ and his church. Yes, and you'll see his 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 efforts towards business. He was going to be successful in that way, but he was going to be very successful in the ministry as well and productive. And you'll see right away here the genuineness of his conversion as he gets involved in church and he does hop around a little bit. He uh, he's looking for a church that's that's exciting, that's on fire, and but he immediately he uh, he rents. I'm not sure exactly where he gets the idea of going out and getting people, maybe from Mr. Kimball or whatever, but he rents pews, which is not something we do today, but he get, finds himself four pews to rent and goes out, and and again, probably because of the way he was brought up and he, he had a love for poor children, he just went and found children, brought them to church, and he wasn't gift, he wasn't really learned in how to share the gospel, but he would get, get them to people who could share the gospel with them. Yeah, so he runs four, four pews in Plymouth Congregational Church, fills them up very quickly. Then he finds a different congregation, uh, and it was essentially, and D.L. Moody throughout his ministry, he believed, believed, believed in the Sunday school and mm-hmm. training people with the Bible. And so he believed in, he wanted to give children the advantage that he did not have in a Christian uh, understanding, a Christian education. But he was just a shoe salesman. He wasn't a Bible teacher. Uh, he would go out and get the children, but uh, he didn't think that he could ever teach them. So we end up here. Um, he, he finds this on Wells Street in Chicago, Avenue, this building, and these people that have, he goes in there, and he, he, um, he asks about a Sunday school, and, he, and he's, his, uh, their response was, we have 12 teachers, 16 pupils, but uh, you can have any new scholars that you bring in, and then to, uh, to see him the following Sunday report 18 bareheaded, barefooted, ragged street urchins, everyone, as he explained, with souls to save. So first Sunday goes out, gets 18 uh, young children, and um, brings them in and has these Sunday school teachers teach them. He would continue to find ways to round up poor boys and girls and get them to church. And uh, it appears, I don't know if I'm getting ahead of you, but it appears that the what would become the Moody Church mm-hmm. that we know famously in Chicago was started on a drift log along Lake Michigan. Mm-hmm. I have that here. In, right. Uh, page 30. Called the Sands, a place called the Sands. Yep. And uh, he, would, he would do crazy things, as they called him Crazy Moody, and uh, he would rent ponies and and do all kinds of things to get kids to come and get their attention and that that small beginning on a on a log within a year was averaging 600 mm-hmm. and that would grow to a thousand and fifteen hundred just from uh, kind of to make a long story short there from that little drift log 
Yes, and so he's renting out dance halls, and then um, uh, early Sunday mornings they're going clearing out these dance halls, and they're they're clearing all the debris from the night before, and filling a thousand to fifteen hundred children in these halls. And at the same time, just remember that he is not doing the majority or hardly any of the teaching. He's having other people do it. He doesn't think that he can do it. He can organize going out there and getting. Uh, getting the kids, but um, but he is again full time businessman. He's paying for many of this, much of this out of his own pocket, and we see he saves up seven thousand dollars. And when he goes into full time ministry, that uh, seven thousand dollars is going to be spent very quickly. Yeah, it says it mentions it like this. What he's doing here, bringing all these people in, it was it's hard to believe, but it's still just a sideline for him. This is what he would do on Saturday. This is his weekend activity. Yeah. Yes. Um, the next chapter has to do with another, and you'll see, we're going to see like these pivotal turns in the life of Dwight Lyman Moody. And I mean, uh, Could I know, just say one thing before yeah. we move on? One, one quick thing. Just wanted to mention the thing about Moody's work with the children and not to underestimate your opportunity Amen. to work with children if you do, because not only certainly the lives of the children are so important, but what that did for Moody himself uh, as he, that was a tool God used to help him grow as a minister, as he worked with these young people, and uh, they just really grew to love him. There's a kind of a touching story at the end how they, were, he was asking the children about what they were thankful for, and they said, "There's nothing we're so thankful for you as for you, Mr. Moody." And so he really had given himself to these young people, right. and they loved him. And uh, as all these little street urchins were going to Sunday school, 1,000 to 1,500 of them, um, you know, the one was asking the street, uh, why, why do you go to a place like that? And he said, well, because they love a feller like me. <laughs> and uh, they knew Amen. they were loved. And, um, yep. and he, they knew that Mr. Moody loved them, that he cared about them. And so there's, you know, it says in Philippians chapter number one, he that had begun a good work in you shall perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. And so God's, uh, God's working on D.L. Moody. Uh, he's doing much for God, but he still has very, very much to learn. And there's going to be a pivotal experience that he has in a girl's Sunday school class that's really going to change his life in the next chapter. And here's a little summary of what D.L. Moody says about this. This is, this is from the Chicago Times Herald. So here's D.L. Moody quoted. I didn't know what this personal work with members of a girl's class was going to cost me. I was disqualified for business. It had become distasteful to me. So something's going to happen that he has no desire to go back into the business world. He said, I got a taste of another world and cared no more for making money. For some days after the greatest struggle of my life took place, should I give up business and give myself wholly to Christian work, or should I not? God helped me to decide a right, and I have never regretted my choice. Oh, the luxury of leading someone out of darkness of this world into the glorious light and liberty of the gospel. Again, that's from the Chicago Times Herald. Amen. So between 1856 and 1859, there was the two great passions, merchant and then missionary on the weekends. Right. Okay, so here's what happened. 
I'm just going to go ahead. This is, this is put in such good words by Moody. I, I can't, I can't um, um, really uh, summarize it better for you. So here's Moody's account. Here's, here's a life-changing experience for him. I'd never lost sight of Jesus Christ since the first day I met him in the store of Boston. But for years, I really believed that I could not work for God. No one ever had asked me to do anything. When I went to Chicago, I hired four pews in a church, and I used to go out on the street and pick up young men and fill those pews. I never spoke to the young men about their souls. That was the work of the elders, I thought. After working for some time like that, I started a mission Sabbath school. I thought numbers were everything, so I worked for numbers. When the attendance ran below 1,000, it troubled me. When it ran to twelve or 1,500, I was elated. Still, none were converted, and there was no harvest. Then God opened my eyes. There was a class of young ladies in the school who were without exception the most frivolous set of girls I ever met. One Sunday, the teacher was ill. I took the class. They laughed in my face. I felt like opening the door and telling them altogether to get out and never come back. That week, the teacher of the class came to the store where I worked. He was pale. He looked very ill. What is the trouble, I asked. I have had hemorrhaging in my lungs. The doctor said, I cannot live on Lake Michigan. I am going to New York State. I suppose I am going to die. He seemed greatly troubled, and then I asked him the reason. He replied, well, I have never led any of my class to Christ. I really believe I have done the girls more harm than good. I have never heard anyone talk like that before. It set me thinking. After a while, I said, suppose you go and tell them how you feel. I will go with you in the carriage if you want to go. He consented. We started together. It was one of the best journeys I ever had on earth. We went to the house of one of the girls called for her. The teacher talked to her about her soul. There was no laughing then. Tears stood in her eyes before long. After he had explained the way of life, he suggested that we have prayer. He asked me to pray. True, I have never done such a thing in my life as to pray to God to convert a young lady there and then, but we prayed and God answered our prayer. We went to the other houses. He would go up the stairs and be all out of breath. He would tell the young girls what he'd come for. It wasn't long before they broke down and sought salvation. When his strength gave out, I took him back to his lodgings. The next day, we went out again. And after 10 days, he came to the store with his face literally shining. Mr. Moody, he said, the last one of my class has yielded herself to Christ. I tell you, we had a great time of rejoicing. He had to leave that next night, so I called the class together that night for prayer meeting. There kindled a fire in my soul that has never gone out. The height of my ambition had been to be a successful merchant, and if I had known that meeting was going to take that ambition out of me, I might not have gone. But how many times I thank God for such a meeting. The dying teacher sat in the midst of his class and talked with them and read the 14th chapter of John, we tried to sing, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds, after which we knelt down to pray. I was just rising from my knees when one of the class began to pray for her dying teacher. Another prayed and another. And before we rose, the whole class had prayed. As I went out, I said to myself, Oh God, let me die rather than to lose the blessing that I have received tonight. The next evening, I went to the depot to say goodbye to the teacher. Just before the train started, 
one of the class came, and before long, without any prearrangement, they were all there. What a meeting that was. We tried to sing, but broke down. The last we saw, that dying teacher, he was standing on the rear of the car, finger pointing upward, telling us to meet him in heaven. D.L. Moody, when he would die, last sermon, he points his finger to heaven. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, same thing. Last sermon he ever preaches, he's pointing up while he is preaching. So that is a life-changing experience for D.L. Moody. Yes. I think it's a great reminder to us. We, we, we believe in soul winning and in passing out tracts and evangelization, but I think sometimes when we're not as fruitful and we're not going after as we should, it's so easy to lose that fire and nothing really ignites your fire, like really seeing people saved, getting out there. I mean, I don't, I, I can't think of a time in my life where I don't feel more joy and more mm-hmm. encouragement and more just inspiration than to see God save us all because of, a, of something that I did. Mm-hmm. And that is such a blessing. I think, I think it's interesting to note, and I had written down here all, all along this while as well, this is going on in his heart and God's working on him about, about this idea of surrendering full time. There's a young lady that he brings into his life, um, Emma, who eventually he would marry and we'll probably get into her. But it's interesting how God uses her to encourage him. And you know the power and the sway of a young lady. And <laughs> I'm sure this, this had to, God use this in some way. And this young girl who had come from England and he had met her at the First Baptist Church, he was talking to her about this, and here, here's this guy that makes a ton of money, and she says to him, money isn't everything. Right. What does he want you to do? Right. And so here's a woman who's thinking about marrying this guy, and women do like security, mm-hmm. and he would have provided financial security for her, but she forsook that security and really encouraged him, hey, God's doing something here. Why don't you go out in the ministry? And they really, the Moody's, especially initially at the start, um, they did live in poverty. And here's a man who could have enjoyed all the luxuries of life. Yeah, absolutely. He could have been a millionaire, you know, in that time. Mm-hmm. For absolutely. Sure. I mean, his first year, he made $300 in the ministry as opposed to the several thousands of dollars mm-hmm. he was making before. I like how it says that... Um, he went to his employer right away, and he just told them, I've decided to give God all my time. And they asked him, how are you going to live? He said, well, God will provide for me if he wishes me to keep on, and I shall keep on until I'm obliged to stop. Right. And the only stop he ever made was 39 years later when he went to heaven. Right. For 39 years from that point, he's going to be out serving the Lord. So he... he Meets young Emma. You want to tell us about their courtship? So here again, Christiana delays not to join the progress. So here's a <laughs> reference to Pilgrim's Pro- Progress, whose his wife did not go with him right away in that book. But here we see that uh, Moody never knew the heartbreak of an unsupportive wife. And um, the fact is he could never do what he did without... Uh, this woman that God brought into his life, there's just no doubt about it. And by it. the accounts of this book, too, that she was um, a, a good teacher, 
Um, she, I don't, I don't believe that she was an overly extroverted person like her husband was, but she was a good teacher. But then also she was very good personal soul winner. Mm-hmm. That she was very good at dealing with people one on one, and um, yeah, they would give the hard cases to her in the inquiry rooms, and she was very talented at that. So at their meetings, yes, they would give people an invit an invitation to go to the inquiry room if they had questions about their soul, and um, if they had a hard case. Uh, sent sent her over to Mrs. Moody. She'd be able to um, to handle somebody like this. So I'll just uh, kind of read a little introductory thought about her. The author the author writes she found the greatest joy in the circle of her home and family. Yet when duty called her to the responsibilities of social life, her nat- natural grace and culture were admired by everybody. She made her home the best place on earth for her family. Everyone understood her wise counsel and support was one of the secrets of D.L. Moody's success. He met her, he saw her for the first time while he was visiting the First Baptist Church in Chicago. And at that time, she was 13 years old and he was 19. And uh, she, she was actually six years old when she had come to the United States. Her father had emigrated to Chicago from England, uh, he was a shipbuilder. And he wanted to, uh, he felt like he could be successful in that area working on Lake Michigan. And it speaks of, let's see here. Oh, at no, it's, so as their relationship kind of came to fruition, it says this, at no other point is the unreasonable grace of God more to be observed than when he brought this adorable young lady into Moody's life. More and more, the boy and the girl found love's sweet reasons for being together until one day, the 23-year-old shoe salesman said a certain something to the 17-year-old girl, which every man who finds his woman knows perfectly well. Mm-hmm. And she, slipping her tender hand into his, whispered, Where thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Amen. And, and here, here's a short paragraph. Um, it's by Irish Sankey, who is going to be Moody's song leader. And he says this, At first she was proud but alarmed by her husband's intense activities. She would always be um, kind of reining him in because he was, he, was so, he was such a um, rambunctious go-getter. So, and then um, it says, Then she mastered the dexterous art which she applied the rest of her life. She has been at his side as it were a break upon an impetuous man. And she held him back and guarded him through all of these years. So God definitely orchestrated those two, bringing them together as an evangelistic team. And D.L. Moody would definitely not be the man that he was, that he was to become without a wonderful woman by his side. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) Hard time finding my... A place yeah, let's too. go. Let's go forth. So he's jumping into full time Christian ministry. He's newly married, and um, and so he says about himself at the early years of his ministry that he had zeal without knowledge. But he said there is much more hope for a man in that condition than a man who has knowledge without zeal. And I've heard somebody say this, and this is I think this is very, very true, uh, that God has used all types of different people with uh, backgrounds, records, um, you know, all sorts of troubles and problems. But God has never used a lazy person. 
Right. And D.L. Moody was never accused of being lazy. You look at his life and you think, um, how did he get so much done? I mean, he was just a worker for the Lord Jesus Christ. He was really, you know, to a fault. He was so busy and, and just doing all the time. So where, where are you at? I am at, you want me to tell you the page? No. Uh, are you, are you, what, <laughs> what chapter are you on? A Pilgrim Walks in the Flesh. Gotcha. Number nine. I got you. And so here's what the papers were saying about Crazy Moody in 1860. Remember, he's packing out um, uh, different places with children, 1,000 to 1,500 children. Uh, the newspapers were full of jokes about him. The folks called him Crazy Moody. And, um, and he'll even say at this time that, um, again, he, he had zeal without knowledge. Now, Civil War in 1861 breaks out. And D.L. Moody is going to be instrumental in leading many, many soldiers to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, um, here's one. In Camp Douglas, it says, Moody was ubiquitous, hastening from one barracks to another, and day and night, weekdays, Sundays, praying, exhorting, conversing with the men about their souls, reveling in the abundance of work and swift success of the war, brought them within their reach. And it says during the war, there was over 1,500 gospel services. So, so day after day, many, many diff different um, services and personal visitation during the war to these uh, soldiers at Camp Douglas. Yes, that, this is a ministry that I wasn't aware of, and I don't think a lot of people are, that he would spend many times, you would leave Chicago to go to different places where these soldiers would need a chaplain or some encouragement, people dying. He would did you did you hear the testimony in the audio book about the soldier that he witnessed to? And the young man said that I've lived a wicked life. I'm not going to be able to go to heaven. And he turned to John chapter number three, started to read John chapter number three to mm -hmm. the man. What verse was it that the young soldier clung to? Uh, but he, he read a verse to the young soldier. He says, will you stop right there? Yeah, yeah. And, he, and he quoted the verse... Um, to himself over and over again, the soldier did, and D.L. Moody left him, came back the next day to check on that young man, and the nurse that was attending to him um, said that young man died with peace in his soul uh, last night. And so this is the kind of work that he would be doing in among um, the, the soldiers. Yes, and this, this chapter is really full of just ministry after ministry after ministry, things he was involved in. YMCA, which is nothing like it is today. Mm -hmm. The YMCA was a ministry mm -hmm. that, that, that was evangelistic. It, it helped people spiritually. And I remember working a secular job at one time a few years ago and trying to tell this guy that the YMCA, what it stood for, Young Men's Christian Association, and he thought I was lying, you know, mm -hmm. because people right. have no clue of what it was back in the day. Yeah, they're just used to... Um they just call it the Y, and they think it has a song. They sing it has a song, <laughs> yeah, at ball games. Yeah. Uh, so here's a statement on the Y and and uh, D.L. Moody's work at the Y, and you see by 1930s it had already changed. So here's what the author says. He said, one cannot do this unless he looked over the Y magazines of 50 years ago, such as The Watchman. Uh, at once one finds that in Moody's day the YMCA had ancient fire, by which whole shoals of martyrs once did burn. Mm -hmm. Then it was Bible study, personal evangelism, 
Bible conference testimony meetings, Bible exposition, and street preaching. Today, the association, with its Athenian buildings, is doing just what Moody feared, Mm -hmm. carrying dead men, unconverted workers. And so that's written in the 1930s. So it had changed from the 1800s. Uh, to the 1930s, and of course, the founder of the YMCA is William Booth, who is an amazing, amazing soul winner. And so, um, D.L. Moody was a part of that um, organization. Yes. So it continues, just talking a lot about the the various things that Moody's just so involved in. Talks about his schedule a little bit. He would have noon prayer meetings. And before that noon prayer meeting each day, he would have his own time uh, with the Lord where he'd spend an hour in the closet uh, under the stairs. And that became, it said, Pentecostal to him. And So he didn't establish that, uh, that quiet time. He's going to learn later, and I think we're going to see another transition. He's going to take a trip, a transformational trip to England. He's going to come back to New York City. Uh, he's going to realize that uh, his emphasis has been in the wrong place. It should be more reliant upon the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. and he'd been relying upon his flesh, and he's using you know, his fleshly salesman abilities and relying upon that a lot more than the Lord. Uh, but later on in his life, it's going to be between 4 and 6 in the morning is when he is going to just voraciously read the Bible every single morning. That was going to be his own personal time with the Lord. Um, the emphasis of his ministry is going to change, but we see great halls being built. One of them is called Methodist Hall. Uh, he says about Methodist Hall is uh, $100,000 is given to build a 3,000-seat auditorium. This is 1867. Uh, Moody says there at the dedication, when I see young men by the thousands going in the way of death, I feel like falling at the feet of Jesus with prayer and tears to come and save them. This building is the answer. I have faith that a mighty influence will go out from us that shall help bring the whole world to God. So he's um, they're just out there and voraciously working and working away. And um, Folks who uh, were helping him get the church organized actually wanted him to start his own denomination, kind of like we would call Wesleyan right, Methodist. Right, like the, the, the Wesley started Methodism or yeah, some sort of a denomination. And, of course, he did not do that. And, and so he, it talks about how busy he became, and he even says that I didn't even have five minutes in a day to prepare a sermon because I had so many responsibilities in the ministry. And the next step in his life, and the title of the chapter, and his work becomes bondage. And he really, uh, he's redoubling his efforts. He's working very, very hard. Uh, but him and his wife need a break. I think that this is really a battle that all Christians face, mm-hmm. all Christian ministers. I think it's not something you get complete victory over, but I think God reveals it to you in your own life. I know in my own life I I can look back and see times where I was completely doing what I did in the flesh. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a process of growth where you realize that it's not what you're doing but what Christ is doing in you and through you that makes makes it all you know profitable and this is the growth process that Moody is really going to begin uh, doing in a, in a great way yes and so they take a trip 
they go on a on a holiday and they go to England. Now his wife has asthma, and so he's uh, he wants to do this. They said the Atlantic journey is going to be um, helpful, but it, here. Richard Ellsworth Day says really what it was is spiritual asthma Mm -hmm. by Moody. And he is just worn down in his flesh. And he's so motivated. He doesn't even realize it, how motivated he is in his flesh to do work for God and and not um, by the Spirit. So he goes on a spiritual journey to England, and he wants to meet these, what he calls, British men of the book. Now, remember that Moody... I mean, he gets he gets saved at nineteen. He has no biblical understanding. He's a little bit above illiterate. He can read some. He can write some. And it reminded and, me a lot of myself after I graduated from Bible <laughs> college. Yeah, and and so yeah, and he has no he has no spiritual advantage as far as understanding of the Word of God. Uh, but this journey, he's going to meet men who really know the Lord and have had the advantages in life that he has not had, and they're going to be like guideposts to him. And he is going to like any successful man or woman is going to stand on the shoulders of others. And so he, he's going to meet some of the, the greats over in England, and they're going to help him. And in return, he's going to help them. He's going to be a blessing to them in return. He's going to do a great work in um, the land of England. Yeah, I just love this chapter. This was a, a, such a blessing to me. And I didn't realize really what how, how God was working in England during the 1800s. Mm-hmm. There was some amazing men of God. Yes. And it really inspired me as I read through this to maybe go back in the days and years ahead to study some of these men of God that, that he put across Moody's path. Yes. So where do you want to begin in here? There's no, so a whole they, lot of stuff. So they go to England to cure Emma's asthma, but what happens is Moody's own spiritual asthma is cured by this trip as he meets these British men of the book. And the first person he wants to see is none other than Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Now, Moody's 33 years old. He's unknown to Spurgeon. And he does make an appointment and a meeting, and he meets very briefly with Charles Haddon Spurgeon. But he sits up and hears Spurgeon preach. Remember, he has read everything that Spurgeon has ever wrote, um, and which Spurgeon wrote a lot. Mm-hmm. And um, so he sits up in the balcony, and um, and he cries. Yeah. He's, he weeps. He, he, it's, it's amazing. He, he gets back, and people want to ask him about all the wonderful things he saw in England. And he says, I could tell them about Mr. Spurgeon. And he said this, he said, I, he said he would like to buy the seat in the high gallery. Now, he was surprised when he got over to England. You know, you did have to get a ticket. Well, it didn't cost you anything, but you did have to get a ticket to Spurgeon's seating because they had to have some sort of order there in the Metropolitan Baptist Tabernacle um, so it didn't get too chaotic with the crowd. So he had got his ticket. He sits high up in the balcony, and he says, I wish I could take that seat back because it's like sacred ground. He called it his Bethel as he heard Spurgeon preach. Um, and he sits up in the balcony, and he hears this great man of God, and he's weeping up in his seat. And someone else said they noticed this bearded man uh, just sitting there and crying the whole entire service. And so he said, I would like to buy a seat in the high gallery where 
he was first seated and take it back to America with me. It was Bethel to him. He went home a better man. So that's his first introduction to Spurgeon. And if that wasn't enough, the author keeps on saying, uh, he goes to meet George Mueller of Bristol. And George Mueller of Bristol is going to be a great influence in um, his life as well. Spurgeon, um, sorry, um, Mueller's autobiography is going to be one of Moody's favorite books in Mueller's autobiography. It's all about prayer and receiving things from God. Uh, Mueller has all these orphanages in uh, Bristol, England, and he uh, has like 1,100 orphans, and he never petitions anybody for money. He just goes to the Lord and prays this money in and has a wonderful, wonderful relationship in prayer and um, before God. And, and so... He meets with George Mueller. The next is a man that we probably haven't heard of, most of us, Yeah, but, but not, changed Moody's life. I had not heard of this individual, but uh, definitely a great man of God I'd like to look into. Uh, Henry or Harry Morehouse. And uh, he would uh, be very instrumental in the, uh, the growth of Moody's approach to biblical preaching. He challenged Moody's preaching. Uh, to become more biblical. And uh, it says that uh, he became God's instrument for changing Moody's whole concept of preaching. Uh, Moody, after Morehouse's brief and spectacular ministry in Chicago in 1867, Moody had no need of further proof that a Christian must first know precisely what the Bible says before he is at all competent to explain what it teaches. He learned that that was something that was greatly lacking in his preaching. And Harry Morehouse had uh, he was Irish and he had an interesting background, poor background, but uh, he 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 rigorously studied the Word of God and uh, more so than reading books and yep. things about the Bible, he studied the Bible itself. He said, "I'm a man of one book." Right, and so he he knew the Word of God in a tremendous way. And the funny thing is, is that he, you know he gave an invitation to Moody to come to Chicago and preach for him, and uh, Moody blew him off. Uh, and didn't like really remember his name, asked several times. He wrote Moody a letter even, and Moody still blew him off. And then he showed up in Chicago, and um, he said, well, you can preach on and be out of town. And so he, he starts preaching a couple of nights, and his wife goes to the meetings, and uh, he said, how's that, uh, how's that Scottish fella? Well, he wasn't Scottish, he was Irish. <laughs> yeah. And uh, his wife said, Amazing, he's been preaching to us out of the Bible. Mm -hmm. And uh, unlike you, he he tells us God loves us. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so Moody goes and sits there, and it's another life-changing experience back in Chicago as he hears him preach, um, and he's preaching every night um, from the Word of God, and he's preaching his main text is John 3.16, night after night, and Moody is a his whole outlook on preaching is completely changed. And he had a real humanistic approach initially uh, to preaching, where from then on he was going to change. He was going to be a Bible preacher, a Bible preacher. And he wouldn't win the victory overnight. No. He would find times where he would go back to his old ways. Of he'd, he'd be tempted to be a salesman. <laughs> yeah, but he would work at it, and he wouldn't give up. And, that, you know, that's something that spoke to me as a, as a lesson that Moody knew he had some weaknesses and he didn't give up. 
and he kept asking God to help him with him. He kept working at him, and uh, at the end of the day, he became known as a man of God's word and not as what his weaknesses were. And so the authority of God's word in his preaching became uh, something that he was a testimony of his. I think that's a blessing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so and and we'll get in we'll get into him a little bit uh, a little bit later, but um, there's also two ladies that had a great impact on his life that he referenced them very many times, and uh, that is Mrs. Cook and Mrs. Snow. And they were free Methodists, and free Methodists uh, had much emphasis on the Holy Spirit, and they believed in praying through and the second blessing and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and he said that they'd come to the prayer meetings, they'd make him nervous. Um, <laughs> And he says they saw that he wasn't in the will of God. He was not filled with the Spirit. They were praying for him uh, just as if he was a sinner. He was like, oh, like you know, pray for sinners. Don't pray for me. Um, and so they were praying that he would, he would receive uh, the, the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, here he says, uh, he who had the largest congregation in Chicago, so he had the biggest church in Chicago, and there were so many conversions could anybody be doing more for God than he? No, a thousand times no. But these two women were influential in his life because they they saw that he was not filled with the Holy Spirit, and he was not fully um, he was not fully submitted to the Holy Spirit's control. Right, and he he knew on the outside he was annoyed by that, but he knew in his heart there was something missing in his life. He was miserable. He kept saying he knew something was wrong. He knew he was missing something. He became depressed. And uh, so he just kept asking God, what is wrong with me? And so he felt almost, it says that he felt a sense of shame in his ministry and in his own personal life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so he said that uh, during this time period also, he had a mulling depression that seized his soul. And this was for about a year's time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, and I think that you come across this in many, many different men who, before a spiritual breakthrough comes, they have a very dark night of the soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have that night of uh, weeping, but joy comes in the morning. And so he's, he's praying, oh God, what is wrong with me? Mm-hmm. He also meets 1871, meets Iris Sankey, who he is going to, um, Iris Sankey has a wonderful voice, and he as well, Iris Sankey has a wonderful job as well, uh, but uh, Moody hears him one time, comes up to him and says, hey, you're going to have to quit your job, and you're going to have to come on the road with me. It's interesting, um, it, there's actually recordings of Iris Sankey singing on the internet. I did not know that. Yeah, you could listen to them. And, you know, the book kind of testifies of this, but when you listen to it, it doesn't sound like he's this great singer. Yeah. But you just kind of have to put yourself in that time and in that ministry and to realize that this was a man that was filled with the Holy Spirit and God used him in an amazing way. Again, it's not about talent. It's about consecration. There's two chapters uh, about Sankey, and he believed that you should pray as much for the singing as you do for the preaching and that unconverted people should have no part in Christian music. They should not play instruments. They should not sing. That uh, no backslidden Christian should be singing. That... um, that the singing was as important to ministering the gospel. One thing they said about him is that he sang the gospel, and the songs that he wrote, the Moody Sankey hymn book would build a lot of the buildings for Dwight Lyman Moody. It was one of the um, 
the biggest and most published book, that hymn book of uh, the 1800s, and it would pay for a lot. And those songs uh, were all clear gospel presentations. There's many testimonies of him singing those songs and people being converted or their hearts breaking and getting ready for Moody to sing. So he was was an amazing uh, singer, and but he had the Holy Spirit on him, uh, and and he, um, you know, he he believed that you should not sing a song that was not clear and distinctive gospel message inside that song. Mm-hmm. And so he like, probably like you listen to a recording of him. Um, it's not that powerful. Just like the author says that you've read, I, I've read D.L. Moody stuff. I think it's good. I think it's very practical. It's very pertinent, but it's not Spurgeon. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's very good, but they said that, you know, if you read his writing, you'll like wonder what the big deal with Moody was, but they person to person had this presence with um, with people that was very very um, attractive to them. So in the next in the next chapter it says the Holy One gives him an accolade of fire. So he meets Morehouse. Uh, Henry Morehouse comes preach to him and changes his ideas about preaching that you should be preaching God's word. And, and Morehouse says to him, "If you will change your course and learn to preach God's words instead of your own." He will make you a great power. And then it goes on to say the Spirit gave him no rest. He had been ambitious, not preaching for Christ, he said. Uh, he was preaching for ambition. Mm-hmm. He found everything in his heart that ought not to be there. So you want to talk about his experience there in Wall Street? Sure, yes, he said... I mean, as he just mentioned, he didn't he didn't honor the Holy Spirit. He felt convicted about um, just his his lack of biblical approach. There, it says that he began to study the Bible on his knees, and let's see here. I'm trying to follow your train of thought there. Why don't you go ahead and and and, <laughs> and do what you were thinking of doing? Go go. Go where you were thinking of going next. Sure, hold on. What? Okay, so uh, Dwight Lyman Moody is in New York. These two women have uh, really been burgers underneath the saddle just because they've convicted him. They were catalysts for his own conviction. And um, he's been praying. Uh, and he says that as he's walking, every time he steps down New York City, all of a sudden, he says, one foot says glory, and the other responds, hallelujah. He says he starts sobbing. Uh, he goes to a friend and, um, and asks for a room. And here, here's, what, um, here's what happens. In that room, the presence of God comes on him very, very strongly, and he receives the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Now, people are going to ask him about this later, um, is if he got the second blessing or if he got some sort of anointing, he said, no, I haven't got a second blessing. I've gotten thousands of blessings, and the Holy Spirit consecration, the Holy Spirit anointing is something that continually needs to be sought after. But for some reason, this was a turning point in his life. This was a catalyst where he realized that he needed the Holy Spirit's power, and for a year he lives in depression, and then finally the Lord breaks through 
uh, and the Holy Spirit is poured out upon him. It says he he felt a, a constraint against all his habits to communicate uh, a personal experience. The fruits of his preaching had been small and few. Few. In distress, he walked the streets of the great city by night. O oh God, anoint me with thy spirit. God heard him and gave him right on the street what he had begged for. Words cannot express the influence upon him. He had been trying to pump water out of a well that seemed dry. He pumped with all his might, and little water came. Then God had made his soul like an artesian well that could never fail of water. He knew now what a lovely someone meant when he said, But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up to everlasting life. And so this was one of the another pivotal point in the ministry of D.L. Moody is this anointing that he received there in Wall Street, New York City, in inside of a friend's room and uh, changed his ministry. Again, it wasn't just an experience, one-time experience, but it was a start of a lifetime of experiences with the Holy Spirit. Definitely. I think it's a testimony to his teachability and his humility. You know, he could have blew off all these people that kept telling him, you know, when he was doing these great things. He had the biggest church in Chicago. What are they yeah. going to teach him? Yeah. You go build a bigger church, and you, then you can tell him. Yeah, no, right. he was not um, proud, but a humble man. So the great Chicago fire happens. This is a pivotal point in um, D.L. Moody's history. is a very interesting story. The great tabernacle burns down. Uh, his new house burns down. Uh, Iris Sankey's house burns down. He learned something also about... Um, an invitation impressing men's souls, the people that were gathered together that night of the fire. Uh, he sends them home without having pressed them for a decision. He says, come back tomorrow uh, if you have uh, questions about your soul. But that night, um, many, of, many of the people in the crowd perished. And then, of course, many of those people were scattered. And he said he would handle things different. He learned from that for the rest of his life. Uh, his wife and his children also and that other book, I don't know why I wouldn't say that in this book, but um, Horatio Spafford, who was a, was a friend, Horatio Spafford's not mentioned in this book, mm -hmm. but Horatio Spafford was a Chicago businessman who wrote uh, the song It Is Well With My Soul mm -hmm. after his three daughters perished in the Atlantic, uh, and he was going to help D.L. Moody in England. But the night of the Chicago fire, uh, Mrs. Moody gets the two kids and she gets a picture of her husband. That's the only thing they saved out of the house. And they find shelter in the home of Horatio Spafford that night. I got to tell one of my favorite stories. It's not in this book, but it's an audio book you sent me. Mm -hmm. And here's Mrs. Moody. Every, they're getting ready to save what they can <laughs> out of their house. And she wants his painting, his portrait. And this was a very expensive gift that was given to them. And she, and she's trying to get it. In the meanwhile, looters are breaking into their house. And they come under conviction. And then they ask her if they can help her with anything. And mm -hmm. she needs help getting this painting because it's a fix somehow. And they kick it. She ends up getting hit in the face, gets a black eye. Make long story short, she, she's carrying this painting out. She asked DL... So I think they wanted to break the frame to make the so they could just get the uh, the painting out of the frame. Is that what it was? Yeah, basically, yeah, something yeah. like that. So she asked Dwight, her husband, if she'd carry it. If he'd carry it, he kept telling her not to get it. Yeah, and he says, "I'm not carrying that. Can you see? <laughs> uh, here I am." 
No, this, he's fleeing this the Greek creature, and I and I get picture of myself. <laughs> I get my painting. I save my painting of me on the way out of the Chicago fire. I just thought that was so human. Yeah, that is funny. And I could totally, I could see my wife asking me that, and me feeling the same exact. I'd be like, yeah, no way. I'm not going to be <laughs> you, seen you run, fleeing Chicago with a picture of myself. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That is funny. Now, it talks about the Holy Spirit anointing and then also, like hand and glove, whenever there is an endowment of power of God, there is an abandonment to the will of God. And so they're trying to pick up the pieces from the Chicago fire. And uh, Moody and Sankey both live in the north side tabernacle. And so here, here's this great evangelist. And uh, and also pastor of this great uh, this great church, and uh, they move into the tabernacle to live. And and it says they almost it says revival swept the people. They had almost a continual service together, uh, crowds weeping over sin, uh, one day shouting over part in the next. Dispirited men and women seemed so absorbed, and Moody's. Uh, has overflowing gladness. In 1867, churches were soon filled. If outsiders could not find the, that people within them, um, if, the, if the outsiders could find the people loved them, then they came, and this draws sinners. And so emphasis is on revival, emphasis is on loving your neighbor as yourself, and still uh, in his in his ministry about going out and getting them and showing compassion and love. Uh, he says the reason why the church grew is because people inside the church loved and went after sinners. Yes, this, this whole, I think this chapter is really a tribute to Moody's pursuit of being more biblical and being more spirit-filled. And he realizes that this idea of the need for loving people and loving sinners, but you can't give what you don't have. Mm-hmm. And you can't love because the fruit of the Spirit is love, and you've mm-hmm. got to be filled with the Spirit if you're going to uh, love people. And that was a great lesson for him. Uh, he At this time, it says he had no new truth to present, but now those truths that he had been preaching were anointed truths. And he's saying that so he had preached the same sermons and where before he'd had 10 people saved, now he's having 100 people saved. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'm preaching the same exact thing, but this time what's different is I'm preaching in total dependence and in the power of uh, the Holy Spirit. There's one story in there that um, the author kind of overlooks, and I've heard it, and maybe it's been embellished by preachers, but I like it very much, is there's a lady in England that's praying for um, her church and praying for revival. And this lady, she's she's an invalid. She can't go to church. And and so uh, one day her sister comes home and says, uh, you're not going to believe who pe- preach in church on Sunday. Um, D.L. Moody was there. So the answer to her prayer and Moody's going to preach a great revival in England. After we talk about Sankey, he's going to go to that revival in England. Amazing, amazing revival. Uh, and this lady goes and gets Moody and says, I, I, want you to, I want you to meet the lady who's responsible for this revival. It's my sister. And, uh, of course, the author says, well, of course, there's more uh, 
people responsible for the revival than just one woman. Uh, but Moody did credit this lady with bringing him to England because she prayed night and day, this invalid woman, uh, for Moody specifically to come to her church. So Ira Sankey, I don't know if you had any points on that because Dave is a music man, and so I thought he had some pretty good stuff in there. Man, are we going to skip over Mr. Varley? I got to tell, tell before before I go to Ira Sankey, I just got to I got to talk about that story. Yeah, that right? go. Yes. So he's preaching in uh, Dublin, and um, they they come across this this individual. He's a basically a lay preacher. And he's a butcher by trade, and he's, but he's just a welcome man of God, preached for Spurgeon, Morehouse, anytime he's welcome. Um, and so during, it says, during the Dublin conference, the guest of good old Henry Bully gathered early one morning and a large haymow for a season of special prayer and confession and renewed consecration. Goes on to say that uh, this individual, Mr. Varley, in a quiet way and in a deep humility, at a hushed interval, in this Haymow conference, I have no idea what that means, <laughs> but it says, Varley said, and he spoke out of his own living experience, the world has yet to see what God can do with and for and through and in a man who is fully and wholly consecrated to him. And it was that chance remark that greatly moved Moody, and he uh, certainly gave testimony to that later on, that that was something that he was challenged to uh, commit to be that individual. He said, God willing, I will be that man. Amen. Yeah, that, so that was one of the the big statements and the mantra of Modi's life that he would be that man that was fully consecrated to the Lord. In, in regards to Ira Sankey, there's so much that could be said um, in here. And I, I don't want to get into the weeds, but I, he was... He was a great man of God, a spirit-filled man, but he knew his place with Moody. Mm-hmm. And he certainly loved the Lord every bit as much, I think, as Moody. And But he knew his place. He saw himself as an armor-bearer, and he was pleased mm-hmm. to be that, that person. For, and he could Moody. fill in. He could speak um, if Moody was out of town. But he accompanied Moody and um, just a, a great, powerful man of God. I mean, he was like uh, the George Beverly Shea. <laughs> uh, and and also Billy Sunday, because George Beverly Shea was, you know, Billy Graham's song leader. Um, and, uh, Billy Sunday had Homer Roadheaver. Right. And then Moody had Sankey. And so music does play such an important part in um, in the worship of the Lord. And I think sometimes... Uh, in response to what's going on in modern churches and big box churches where the whole thing is um, about the worship service and there's 45 minutes of uh, music and then there's 15 minutes of preaching, that sometimes we are tempted to the pendulum to go the other way. Well, it's not about the the singing at all. It's about the preaching. Um, But for Moody... You know, he believed, and along with like Martin Luther, Martin Luther thought that if a man couldn't write music, he wasn't called to preach. Hmm. And uh, the the, um, accusation of the Roman Catholic Church towards Luther is that uh, the people are singing themselves into Luther's doctrine. So he took the Bible and he taught doctrine through singing. It was the same with uh, Charles and John Wesley, that they wrote some 600 or 700 hymns. And it was a tool of 
of um, of education, doctrinal education, and uh, Moody had the same understanding as uh, the reformers did, and as church leaders did. Uh, Moody said this: "I will, I will not have songs that have no doctrine in them, mm-hmm. nor singers without the Holy Spirit." And he knew that Sankey was a Holy Spirit filled and doctrinal um, man that uh, had a, a a unique ability to put songs together and to minister the gospel in song. Yeah, I'd like to read this. Uh, D.L. Moody said this, It is a mistake to regard the sermon as the only important thing or even the main thing. There is often more gospel in gospel hymns mm-hmm. than in the sermon. Song carries the gospel into many hearts. The sermon does not reach. And, and Moody often said that if the if the message... What the message, the person that didn't get it from Moody would get it from Sankey. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, honestly, I would really encourage any musician in the ministry to read these two chapters on Sankey. It's very good. Because he talks about principles of music. There's an, he had an emphasis on congregational singing. One of the reasons why he, he brought his little, um, his little organ with him, he said, because they go into these churches with these huge pipe organs, uh, and they said, how come you don't like the big pipe organs? He said, because they drowned out the congregational singing. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of modern music, they go in there, they're just listening to the band sing, and they're not ministering, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Uh, he also said that your music ought to be prayed for as much as the preaching is prayed for. He said this, um, we have heard that you do not want non-Christians in your choruses, however good their voices. <laughs> and he said that that is true. Um, he says the power of God is necessary in singing as in preaching. Choir practices should begin and end in prayer. Mm-hmm. And so there was a very spiritual, doctrinal, congregational emphasis on um, the ministry of the music. Yeah, he said four-fifths of the traditional trouble is because of ungodly people and choirs. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, music was not a performance to him. It was ministering. Um, and he was like Moody in this manner, and I always thought it was Moody, and I had read where it was Moody that um, put his hands on Gypsy Smith, because. Uh, uh, um, but it, here it says this This was Sankey, not Moody. And I know I read that it was Moody that did this. There's a great preacher, Gypsy Smith, who um, they call him Gypsy Smith because he grew up a gypsy and became a great preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Moody and Sankey came to his gypsy village, and um, as they were leaving, he comes up as a young man, and Sankey, um, it, so here, in the spirit of Moody, in the spirit of a Soliner, uh, in the spirit of Edward Kimball, the great Sunday school teacher that led Moody to Christ, uh, Gypsy Smith, he says he narrates with tears, Young Sankey put his hands on my head when I was a boy in Epping Forest and said, May the Lord make a preacher of you, my boy. And, and the Lord answered Sankey's prayers. Just a quick uh, testimony of how they first came to meet each other. Uh, D.L. Moody was at a YMCA meeting, and it says that he was annoyed during the meeting over the dull and stupid singing. I think, really, that tells a lot about Moody because he he was looking for powerful singing. Amen. He believed yeah. it was important yes. in, in the service. And so this Reverend uh, Robert McMillan, uh, he tells Sank, Sankey happens to be there, who had been working in different YMCA ministries. He says, Sankey, get up and sing something. And he got up, no accompaniment, 
he sings, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And almost, you just get the impression like Moody is like, like jaws, it's like completely silent. And he's like, whoa. Uh, Moody immediately goes to Sankey. It says, with machine gun rapidity. He asked him about his private life. Then with Moody, abruptness told him, I've been looking for you for seven years. Amen. You're going to have to go give up your job. Yeah. I'll, you sing, I'll talk. I mean, Moody's a good salesman. He just <laughs> sold him on quitting his job and coming to work for him. And, you know, it annoys the fire out of me. Like, um, after service is supposed to start, the song guy's, like, picking out the songs for the service and thinking, there's no thought. It's an afterthought. And then, you know, the singing is like a funeral dirge. Wow. And then, you know, the special music is, you know, the... There's no, I mean, the, they're working on the sound after it starts and this, and then, and then the preacher's job is to like repair all the damage that was been done by the song service where Moody understood that you set the tone yeah. in the song service. Well, the, the best illustration I ever heard is that, that music is to the preaching what John the Baptist was to Jesus Christ. Wow. That's good. I've never heard that. Oh, yeah, that, that is really good. I think that's so true. That's the way I try to look at it, you know. Oh yeah, so. it's so uh it's so important. It's so important. Yeah. So okay. That was Sankey. And yeah, he is he is a great guy. Uh they write the Moody Sankey hymn book, which you can still get those today. I encourage you to get one and um you can read through those songs as a devotional speak to your heart. I've got the Moody Sankey hymn book somewhere in my library, but they are still around. Yeah, they made a, a those things uh, financed a lot of the ministry. So Moody and Sankey, they head to England, okay? Remember, there's a lady, the invalid. She's praying for them to come. They come, We're and the world turns aside. Gotcha. gotcha. Okay. And... Um, we don't want to be, Dave and I don't want to be here all night, you know, because we do want to eat dinner. <laughs> um, so we'll, we'll spend, a little, spend a little bit of time on this. It was a great, great revival in England that lasted for two years. And they go there initially. They don't even know if they have a place to preach. But F.B. Meyer, which that name means a lot to me, he writes commentaries and biographies on um, men and women of the Bible, and they're phenomenal phenomenal yeah. books so he he's a baptist minister he opens up his chapel to moody he starts preaching there and it's like a damn verse it says the great revival in england continued slightly for more than two years from the landing of moody party june 17th 1873 to the return to new york on the ss spain august 4th 1875 and it was a triumphal march yeah, I had a book. I have a book on my shelf by F. B. Meyer. Had no idea who he was, and then when, as soon as I read this account of, you know, his ministry was transformed by Moody's influence. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, that book came, you know, just became very important to me. Yes, and uh, F. B. Meyer's stuff is wonderful. Mm-hmm. It's very, very good. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's understandable. Uh, it's a layman could read F. B. Meyer's stuff today, and but to to make the connection that. Um, Spurgeon and Moody and uh, Mueller, they had prayer meetings together. I mean, they, those guys prayed together. And F.B. Meyer and these others, um, many, many men, like we were saying at the beginning of the podcast, um, were influences to Moody. And then the blessing went both ways because the, the blessing went back towards 
these men. Um, here's a here's a comment in this in this chapter here at the end of the world turns aside that uh, speaks of Moody and he says, God has chosen the weak things of this world to confound the mighty that no flesh should glory in his presence. Let's take our place in the dust and give God the glory. When God delivered Egypt, he didn't send an army. We would have sent an army or an order, but God sent a man who had been in the deserts for 40 years and had an impediment in speech it is weakness that God wants. Nothing is small when God handles it. God wants us to ask great things of him. Pray, oh God, give me the Holy Spirit. And so now, again, yeah, he had the biggest church in Chicago. But once he learns the lessons of the Holy Spirit, his whole life and ministry changes from this point on. Right. Let that resonate. It is weakness that God wants. That is so important. Um, the next portion of, of Moody's life uh, is, is going to be in him learning um, to study the Bible. Yeah. So the Holy Spirit and the Word of God are, are the, the two key elements of all that D.L. Moody did through the revivals, through the founding of institutions, all these Christian institutions and all these Bible institutes. Uh, and again, his, his friend, Henry Morehouse was very, very instrumental in teaching Moody how to study the Bible. Uh, in the chapter entitled His Scroll, talking in reference to the Word of God, uh, every morning he rose at 4 a.m., and for two hours he had Bible reading. And I have every reason for believing, said Tory. This is going to be uh, the man who followed Moody in his ministry there, that Moody rose early this way all the way to the close of his life. And I'm going on summer vacation next week. Um, and Moody took a vacation in this, this chapter, and it says, um, to the foregoing methods, he added an annual intensive reading. Okay, so he's going to uh, take a vacation, a sabbatical, mm -hmm. every summer. And just think about this. Um, you know, a lot of times, and when he first started the ministry, he probably would never take any time off because he was way too important. Exactly. Um, but now he's taking sabbaticals so he can just go and bathe in the Word of God, and he's just going to immerse himself completely and totally in the study of Scripture. And let me challenge you, you know, if you're taking summer vacation, why don't you read 10 times as much Bible as you normally read? Because mm -hmm. that's what D.L. Moody would have done. A lot of times I think, we're on vacation, so I'm just going to read a verse a day or some, some cheesy thing where you take a vacation away from God. Uh, where D.L. Moody took a vacation to God, and um, the, the great preacher who at one time pastored the two biggest churches in the United States, in Dallas and in Detroit, you know his name? J. Frank Norris. J. Frank Norris. But I don't one know month what you're a year, <laughs> He would go to the mountains, and he would just uh, do nothing but study. Now, not every one of us have that availability, but he did, and, and D.L. Moody did as, as well once he was established. So here it says, To the foregoing methods, he added an annual intensive reading. He said, I get tired toward the end of July, and I go away to the mountains. I take my Bible with me. Try that next summer on your vacation. That's what the author says here. Mm -hmm. I read it through, and I feel as if 
I have I had never seen the book before. It seems so new, rich, and so varied. The truth flashing from a thousand unexpected, undiscovered points with a light above the sun. That summer reading is what I call tuning the instrument. I think one thing we see here in his ministry is that he's be, he's really beginning to develop a faith in God's Word and in the power of God's Word, not in his ability to explain it, but the actual Word itself doing the work, empowered by the Spirit. He began doing this thing where he would invite people to not a preaching service, but a Bible reading service. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I think that's a unique thing, and I know that we've, we've done that with, with youth group and stuff like that at times, and that's been very effective. Mm-hmm. And that's just, I think it shows a faith in God's Word. You don't always have to explain it. Sometimes the Word of God just needs to be read. And, and, what, and, they, and the author goes on to say, well, what he would do instead of talking about uh, himself is that, you know, he would be preaching about the prodigal son and you would you could feel and, and he would use his great storytelling ability now to tell the story of Scripture. And so he said, like with the prodigal son, I mean, you could you could see the father's tears rolling down his face and, you know, he could describe and he so he'd spend time. Uh, preaching the word of God instead of his own anecdotes and his own illustrations. He was now uh, getting to be a better Bible teacher. And uh, and just think, um, throughout his ministry, so many people are getting saved, as I read at the beginning of uh, the book that he preached to over 100 million people. And you read about the great crowds and 25 years of just straight preaching that a lot of people are getting saved. And so he totally believed, not just in saying some sort of a sinner's prayer or whatever, but dealing with people oh, in yeah. these inquiry rooms, being thorough with them, but then also training them. Sunday schools were huge. Mm-hmm. And then he also rebuked churches that were just having meetings just on Sunday. He said, why not have meetings every day of the week? He says that we should have something going on all throughout the week. So then he's going he's gonna to understand. Now, Moody, Spurgeon, Charles G. Finney, they never went to Bible college. But guess what they all started? Mm-hmm. Bible colleges, Bible institutes. And so Moody is going to realize that, you know, there's so many people getting saved, and we've got to have churches for them. We've got to have good, equipped Sunday school teachers for them. Uh, we've got to train men and women in the Word of God. And, and so he establishes these institutions. And it goes from his scroll. It talks about his convictions. And really his conviction was this. Now, um, you know, Moody was what we would call interdenominational. And I think that would be um, a lot different today, especially because he had biblical convictions. And more than mainline denominations were a lot more fundamental in his day than they were in our day. Um, But one of the things he always stuck to was the message of the gospel. Uh, For instance, it talks like a lot of these um, temperance groups would try to get him involved in preaching just against alcohol. Well, he said, well, let me win a fellow to Christ and his appetite for alcohol is going to go away. And so he didn't, I, I think he did a good job not being pulled to one side or the other he always kept the main thing, the main thing, and the main thing to him was uh, the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Definitely. And anyone that would want to criticize him for that, you know, let's just put their their soul winning record, you know, the difference that they made in lost souls up, to, mm-hmm. up against his because 
he, like anyone you could find fault with, and even there were times where he was criticized for some of his associations you would see in the book. And he didn't like to draw yeah. circles yeah. and leave people out. And and there was a, there was a, a famous preacher of that day and age, uh, Henry Drummond, mm-hmm. who was a good friend of his, but who um, got pulled into science. And you got to understand that even the, as long things continue, the more they stay the same, that he was getting drawn into modernism and evolution as now, uh, you know, science is now disproving a lot of the Bible. This was Henry Drummond, Moody's friend. And Henry Drummond actually withdrew himself from Moody because Moody was getting so much criticism uh, for, for letting Drummond be a part of him. But Moody stuck to the gospel, the simplicity of the gospel. And it says he stuck to the gospel and he stuck to justification, meaning he, Moody believed in living a holy life which I think is the difference between a lot of evangelistic campaigns or churches who say, we are reaching them. Yeah, but I meet your members, and they're worse than the world that is around them. But he really did believe in a life change. And then also, he believed in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It does say in that chapter, too, and I mentioned it earlier, that um, he was asked about the second blessing. And he said, the second blessing, I've received thousands of blessings, but he always did emphasize the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. His arrows, talk about his preaching. I think it's interesting in, in, in the next chapter, it, uh, it talks about his preaching and how he... His ability to speak in the outdoors, very clearly he could speak to 15,000 people and be heard. Um, one statement that really stuck out to me, and I wrote this down and have meditated on it, is that he learned the tone. He learned that tones make all the difference between wounding and healing. And I think that's a, a growth process. So that it's he, how you say it. Yep. How you say what you say is as important as what you say and that was just, just to me, that was convicting and challenging. I, I, like, I thought it was interesting, certainly in contrast to Spurgeon, who had um, 3,500 sermons, and, and Moody had 100 choice spears, basically. <laughs> yep. uh, he had 100 sermons that he would So the work preach. of an evangelist is different than the work of a pastor, yes. Yeah. But uh, he... That's those are the messages that he it's, preached and so, mastered. So how many could how many could Moody preach to at one time? Fifteen thousand. Okay, and so um, if you're wondering how he could resound and his diaphragm could do that, he was like Spurgeon, five foot seven mm-hmm. and two hundred and eighty pounds. <laughs> so he had a big diaphragm to work with. Yes. Another thing about him is he spoke really, really fast. Now let, let listen to this. We hear words rushing from his bearded face like a torrent, often 230 per minute. Mm. So fast that it took four New York reporters. Now, they would write shorthand back in these days. They didn't write out the words. They'd write shorthand. Uh, I did not learn a little bit of shorthand in school. I don't know why they taught us that in this modern era. <laughs> but we, we did learn a little bit of shorthand. And uh, so they're, they're just abbreviating, catching every single word as he's speaking it. Uh, so 230 uh, words per minute, so fast it took four New York reporters to, in relay to get him. Uh, short staccato sentences, imperfect pronunciations. Charles Spurgeon said, The only man, Moody, I ever knew who could say Mesopotamia 
in one syllable. <laughs> so, uh, so he, he got up there and he, he was going to town preaching uh, very, very fast. A quick note on his, uh, as he developed a sermon, it says that he always had a Cruden's Concordance, a topical textbook, and of course read what Spurgeon had to say on the text. And he says, uh, here's instructed Northern California ministers. He says this, don't be deceived. So he's, he's speaking to them how to speak. Don't be deceived. The coming preacher will be the one who takes the word of God and makes it plain to the people. That man will have a hearing. And once again, Henry Morehouse, uh, the man who pointed him to biblical preaching, is quoted again, Moody, you're sailing the wrong track. This is back in his younger days. If I were you, I would change your course and learn to preach God's words instead of your own. He will make you a great power. And Moody took that advice and it did change his life and his ministry, the preaching of the Word of God and being full of the Holy Spirit. I think we can quickly talk about this next chapter. Just yeah, a couple things about the. It, it talks about the a chapter is devoted to the his belief in the inquiry room, which was basically a very thoughtful um, approach to dealing with people who wanted to know how to be saved. And they would they would go after the service and be dealt with by trained soul winners, and uh, you know one on one if possible. Uh, he he believed that if you did that right in the service, there was too many distractions, mm -hmm. and he wanted to make sure people. So he didn't like an altar call with a bunch of people coming down to it. He says too much confusion. Mm -hmm. Deal with people one on one. So you if you have a question about your soul, go to the inquiry room. Uh, and the writer mentions there that some people would. Uh, be counseled for two to three hours, depending mm -hmm. on their case. I mean, so this was a thorough uh, witnessing that was going on. Uh, it did mention in there about the Great Chicago Fire invitation that he would never forgive himself for the night of the Chicago Fire. He slurred over the invitation, told them to think it over for a week. It was such a dreadful lesson brooding over those people who never came together again. Even the relief of the poor was not so much for body as for soul salvation. And so that it was a turning point, that, that failure that sent him up for future success. Uh, that uh, that night, you never know when's the last time you're going to see somebody and press towards their soul. And again, this wasn't a one, two, three, repeat after me. It was if, you're, if you want to know about your soul, go back to the inquiry room and uh, we'll have believers in there that will talk to you mm -hmm. about your soul. And if it took them two or three hours to deal with somebody, and so be it. Yep. Moody said, he told his workers, always use your Bible. Don't get them on their knees until they're ready. And it said that Moody is estimated that he personally dealt with 75,000 people who came forward himself. So can you imagine it? I mean, here's this great man, and he could pawn this, this work off on somebody else. Yep. I'm sure he's tired. If you preach to 15,000 people, uh, remember that it, you're using your whole body mm -hmm. um, and when we covered Spurgeon, when he preached to 23,000 people, he had to go to bed and sleep for how many 
Yeah, it was like, like three days, two, three yeah, days. He couldn't get out of bed. He mm-hmm. was so exhausted. So Moody's preaching to thousands of people. Uh, but afterwards, he is going to the inquiry room, and he is doing the personal work himself, <laughs> ministering to 7,500 people in the inquiry room one-on-one. Uh, so pretty amazing. Uh, and the next chapter has to do with uh, these institutions that are still around um, uh, today, many of them. Now, Northfield Seminary is thus turned liberal. They departed from the faith, and that is a kooky school. But Moody Bible Institute is still um, still on the right track. Moody Bible Church is pastored by... It's not Warren Wearsby, is it? It used to be Warren Weir- Who is it today? I don't know. Um, drawing a blank. But he draw- he writes a lot of books. Very, very good. Uh, very good guy. I got a book over there, uh, The Church in Babylon by Erwin Ir- Lutzer. You ever heard of him? Never heard of him. Oh, very fabulous writer. I, I mean, yeah, he's, he's a good guy. Uh, so these institutions were built. Uh, now he, you know, we're wrapping up his life. But um, here's a significant thing. Here's a boy who grows up uh, in as a fatherless Young man, knows hardship, knows poverty. His mother gives birth to twins after his father passes. Mr. Scrooge, Mr. Purple, he comes and he takes the family firewood. Uh, He wants to foreclose and kick everybody out on the street. His uncles raise $400 to keep them in the home, bring them firewood. So he grows up in this extreme poverty and he's got fear in the back of his mind, like kids from that area, is they don't want to be impoverished any longer. Uh, And so he's a successful businessman, but he chooses to be a poor preacher. Uh, And so he makes this big sacrifice, but it turns out in the end that that property, Mr. Scrooge's property, he is going to purchase that, and that is going to be his Northfield schools, and uh, and he, and he is going to go before he lays the foundation. He's going to go up in uh, his attic where his brothers hid his dad's work equipment, so they wouldn't be um, collected. What do, what do they call when the collectors come? Oh, repossessed yeah, or whatever. Yeah, right, right. So he's going to come and take everything of value. So they hid the dad's tools in the attic and they've been up there for like over 30 years. He goes up and gets his dad's trowel and puts down the headstone for the buildings there in Northfield. Pretty amazing. That's awesome. They tried to get him to get him a brand new silver trowel and he said, nope, I'm using my dad's trowel. That's good enough for me. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And what a what a symbolic thing is that you know you give your all for Christ and you find out you didn't give up anything at all, and in the end you possessed far more uh, than you ever could have. You just lived for yourself. So he establishes these institutes. All these people are getting saved, and he wants a way for um, for people who are young men. He's not against uh, formal education or anything, but uh, a way to train young men and young women for the work of the ministry, for the establishing of the saints. Northfield's going to be one of those schools. He doesn't name the institute in Chicago after himself. That, that happens later on. Right. So it's Chicago Bible Institute. Same with Moody Church. It wasn't named that till after he was dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he establishes these great institutions and uh, just talks about the, the funds that were given, the funds that were raised. Moody and Sankey never kept anything mm-hmm. off of their famous hymn book, which sold more uh, than pretty much any other book of that era and was able to pay for very, very much of uh, the ministry. 
What do you got? All right, where do you want to go next? He's going heavenward. All right, he's going heavenward. heavenward. Let's see here. I like how uh, R.W. Dale was a... He's getting to the end of his ministry. The the book's kind of wrapping up uh, his life and talking about uh, just kind of what his life means. And really, it was just a testimony of what God did with a common man. R.W. Dale was a great man of God in England at that time. And he, he makes a statement that Moody really la- he actually laughs at. He says, I see no relation between you <laughs> and what you have done. Right. And Moody said, that's, you know, basically that's the way it ought to be. You know, if it, if, it, if it were any other way, we couldn't give God the glory. It's pretty awesome. Yes, and um, the people that knew him it would say that, you know, you get close to him and figure out what is his greatness and how in the world was he able to accomplish the things that, that, that he was accomplished. And they'd realize that he's just an ordinary guy. Yeah, there's a great account in this chapter just of what the people of Northfield thought of him. And I would, that's just, a, it was just a great thing to read. They said there was one, uh, there was one atheist, um, blacksmith there in Northfield mm-hmm. who hated Moody, mm-hmm. hated everything he stood for. Uh, but, but Moody in his, his kindness. Now he's, he's getting, um, towards the end, but he would go down there to his horses, be so kind to that man. And so gentle to that man and loving to that man. Like the, the atheist turned out to love DL Moody. That's right. I think we could probably just say about chapter 23, it talks about the cloud of witnesses. Really, there's just a great testimony of the people who bought into the vision of Moody. And unless you have somebody specific you want to go into, I mean, there's just the people that Moody influenced, the lives that uh, even folks that were older than him, uh, his contemporaries and those that came after him, there was just uh, uh, the book kind of gives it, testifies that it wasn't just a one-man show. Mm-hmm. There mm-hmm. were so many people that made what Moody did a possibility. Yes, and there was there was people that um, that Moody gleaned from that he was a blessing back to, um, and the blessing went both ways. For instance, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. You now here he is. He's a thirty three year old man. He's weeping. Listen to Spurgeon speak. Spurgeon has no idea who this this young guy is. He doesn't meet with him, uh, but later on they become friends. Uh, later on, Moody's doing great revivals there, and the the one revival lasted for two years in, in England and and Wales and Scotland and Ireland and all these places that Moody's going. Uh, but uh, Spurgeon, after his death. Uh, one of the first people to speak to Spurgeon's people after Spurgeon died was D.L. Moody, mm-hmm. and then Moody finds um, this this great this this great uh, young young man, uh, Reuben A. Torrey, and R.A. Torrey followed in Moody's footsteps. And then um, I've got a, a book by um, not G. Campbell Morgan. I'm trying to J. think. J. Wilbur Chapman. J. Wilbur Chapman. Mm-hmm. Um, where it was Moody, Tory. When Tory stopped his revival services, he gave J. Wilbur Chapman some of his sermons and some of his revival tents, and J. Wilbur Chapman uh, went on to preach. And then you got uh, Harry Ironsides, who would uh, later preach in Moody's church. And there were so many great... James M. Gray. 
yeah, so so many great men and women of God who um, picked up that mantle after mm-hmm. Moody's departure, and he really did shape Christianity in America. Mm-hmm. It, uh, amazing, amazing work. So he, um, he dies at age 50... 62. 62, at age 62. And... Uh, Five foot seven, two hundred and eighty pounds, and I mean, hey, look, that was before McDonald's, man. So <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't eating processed foods there. Well, ministry doesn't necessarily burn off the carbs. <laughs> no, as busy as he was, um, I think it it's a great testimony. At the end, if you don't mind, I just uh, I just like to read that that yes, one. Yes, please. Um, basically, he they're gathering around him. He has the premonitions that he's going, and I think it's just. He turns the really the silent person and the one that influenced him as much other than Jesus Christ more than anybody, his wife. He looks to his wife and he says, you've been a great wife to me. Yes. That's the last thing he says. Yes. And she got to. Yes. And she said, yes. So the greatest compliment went uh, to his, his wife right there at the end. And uh, so, yeah, amazing, amazing story. Amazing man. Um, in his in his life, definitely is a challenge to my life. I mean, I, I love studying Spurgeon, and I love the testimony of his relationship that he had with the Lord, and he did love the Lord, and it was about him and God. Uh, but I mean, he he's on such a pedestal and such a pinnacle. Where Moody uh, is just an average, ordinary Joe. <laughs> who just gives everything that he has to the Lord, and the Lord uses him miraculously and tremendously. So, is good study, good life. Yeah, is great, great book. So, hey, folks, if you made it, endured to the end, you shall be saved. Thank you for for hanging in there. I it was enjoyable doing this podcast and, and enjoyable talking about this great man of God. I encourage you. There's many good books yes. on. Uh, D.L. Moody, and if you can get books with his sermons, his anecdotes, his lectures, and they're phenomenal. He he is very very good. If you read his stuff, you will enjoy that. Uh, he, he I know he has a book on the power of the Holy Spirit. It's been a blessing. I've read that before, so you can get uh, get those books. I know that that you will benefit from his ministry. So, hey folks, stay sit, stay tuned. Subscribe, subscribe to the podcast, like it, share it. Uh, we got some exciting episodes coming up. And um, last last week we had uh, Brother Gulshan Lal on. Make sure you go back and listen to that one. That one will be a blessing. And then you can find Dave at furtherancemedia.org. Is it .org? Com. Dot com. Furtherancemedia.com. God bless each and every one of you. Thanks for listening.